Hey there, it's Jared. Quick note for you before we get started. Our friends at Manning were kind enough to hook us up with a coupon code for a free ebook copy of Continuous Delivery for Kubernetes. We're going to give it away to a lucky member of the Ship It channel in our community Slack. So if you haven't joined the Changelog community yet, now is a good time to get that done. It's totally free. Just head to changelog.com community to sign up today and join the Ship It channel before we do the drawing. Okay, that's all for me. Here's Gerhard. You are listening to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and books. I am Gerhard, and today I'm talking to Mauricio Salatino, you know him as Salaboy, about the continuous delivery for Kubernetes book that he's currently writing. Mauricio is a staff engineer at VMware, where he spends most of his time contributing to Knative, an open source platform for running serverless workloads on Kubernetes. We spent a few months last year working on Knative eventing, and having watched Mauricio drive the release of Knative 1.0 got us talking. As it turns out, we both appreciate shipping great software continuously. Mauricio's From Monolith to Kate's app that he uses throughout his book has been a few years in the making, and from my perspective, that makes it really interesting. It even makes me want to contribute my CI-CD perspective to this app. So watch this space. Huge thanks to Fastly for shipping our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at fastly.com. Thank you, Manning, for the free copy of Continuous Delivery for Kubernetes book that one of our listeners is going to win. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Shortcut. Have you ever really been happy with your project management tool? You know, they're so hard to get right. They really are so hard to get right. Most are too simple for a growing engineering team to manage all they need to do. And others are just too complex for anyone. And I mean anyone to ever want to use them. They're just so painful. Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse, is different though because it's worse. Oh wait, <laughs> it's better. I mean, it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams and they're fast, they're intuitive, flexible, powerful, and all the other positive adjectives you can apply to them. Let's look at some of the highlights. Team-based workflows, individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows, or you can customize them to match the way you work. Org-wide goals and roadmaps, the work in these workflows automatically get tied into larger company goals, and it takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work, to individual updates, and vice versa. Tight VCS integrations, whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Shortcut ties directly to them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface, the rest of Shortcut is just as keyboard-friendly with their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Throw that thing away. Iterations, planning, set weekly priorities, and then let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burn-down charts and other reporting. Give it a try today at shortcut.com slash ship it. Again, that's shortcut.com slash ship it. Hey Mauricio, it's so nice to meet you again. How's Knative these days? Oh, everything is going great there. Like I'm super excited to see what happens this year, you know, with all the CNCF incubation and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of like planning for the next milestone because after 1.0, now I think that the community is coming together to figure out what's going to be in two and, you know, in the future for the project. CNCF is a big part of that, but uh, we need to keep, you know, focused on making sure that we can keep adding stuff in there. I know that very few people know this, especially from our listeners, but you were the one that actually tagged 1.0. <laughs> I was doing some tagging. There are too many repositories and too many things to release. So I did some tagging. I was, uh, you know, doing the release for the first time and it was a very, you know, particular release because it was 1.0. There are a lot of, you know, details around how Go deals with, uh, you know, semantic versioning and uh, we need to come up as a group with the solution for that. So yeah, I did the tagins and we did the release and it went quite well, to be honest. Yeah, Knative 1.0, that's been a long time coming. And uh, I was so glad to be part of that group 
while that happened. It was just three months while I was like in that Knative group, in the Knative community, but I really enjoyed it. And it was great to see you push it through, right? Like heard all the cats do everything that had to be done to get it out. So thank you for showing me how it's done. It was pretty exciting to be honest, and it was a very good learning experience, right? I remember that uh, at that time when 1.0 went out, I, I wrote a blog post about my personal story with, with Knative. I don't know if you look at it, but it was a very you know personal, very personal experience because I've been looking at the project and working and promoting the project for you know since it was announced uh, by Google. Yeah. So I'm kind of like a big fan from you know the developer perspective. So I was I was really really happy to see this going, and also then to see that that kind of like enabled the CNCF incubation process. I think that that's that's great. That was a fantastic you know 2021 on the professional side, of course. I really enjoy that blog post, but also your Knative weekly blog posts. Mm. I th mm -hmm. think those were my favorites. They helped me understand the Knative landscape a lot better. I was able to basically gather the things that you're top of the mind for that week. It really inspired me to look as a whole rather than on specific things because I was focusing on Knative and on RabbitMQ, sorry, Knative mm -hmm. eventing and RabbitMQ, but you had a much wider perspective. And uh, the reason why I mentioned the whole shipping aspect, because you have a bit of experience with that for a CNCF project like Knative, which is fairly big, long time coming, and it was great to see you do that. But now we are talking about something else, right? The topic for mm -hmm. today's episode is delivery for Kubernetes. That's a book that you're writing. Manning is the publisher. So I'm wondering, when did you start writing this book? Well, it's a long, long project. Writing a book, I don't know if you know, but it's, 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 a, you know, it's a very painful process. And I think that I started last year around March. At that point, I had a proposal for Manning, uh, which why what I thought I should be writing. And that changed completely after writing the first three chapters and after going with Manning through a process of trying to figure out if that works for them or not. Manning, uh, at least from my perspective, they have a different style of writing books. They are very, you know, um, they have like all the, you know, very in-action books where you just go and see how the how a single project is used. And then you can like increase the complexity of the topics. My book, because it's about continuous delivery, it covers a bunch of different tools, one per chapter. And uh, I started with the idea of having kind of like step-by-step -step tutorials, focusing on projects and discussing the concepts that you know, those projects were promoting. Mm -hmm. And that quickly changed to a more like conceptual book uh, with pointers to tutorials and with pointers with projects that are solving different aspects of continuous delivery, continuous delivery, but for developers, always with the focus on developers, because kind of like that's usually the audience that I try to, you know, to target. Okay. Why did you start writing that book? I started writing it because I've been uh, presenting in conferences for the last four years in the Kubernetes space. And I keep noticing that the successful projects in the Kubernetes space, they are all following kind of like the same patterns and the same approaches. And the more you look into these projects and the ones that are standing out, they are always focused on making kind of like the developer more productive. Sometimes they do not focus on developers, but developers get kind of like impacted by them. Mm -hmm. right? And I'm really into that, like developer experience, into building tools for developers. And as a developer, I want a bunch of stuff to happen, you know, around my software, the software that I create. And I, the only thing that I care is that software gets delivered and it's doing something useful, you know, for the use case that you are building. Yeah. And all these tools are in some way related to that story. And as a developer, I had the feeling that I need to understand them all in order to be productive. Through the years, I started learning all these tools and I got to a point where I said, okay, it's, it's, this is kind of like a story worth sharing. Like all these lessons learned, all this perspective, all this kind of like, you know, overview and like higher level views that I'm gaining, it's, they are worth sharing as the same, as you mentioned with the Knative, you know, weekly blog yeah. post. That's pretty much what I'm doing in the book. I'm just trying to extract knowledge and just put it in a high level and then just point to the right resources for people to just consume that. So thanks to Radmila from Manning, two amazing things happened. First of all, mm -hmm. I got a free copy of the book that I could read. I read the first three chapters in detail, left a lot of feedback in the live Perfect. book. I 
still don't know how to share that with you, but it's there. Mm -hmm. There's two more chapters, which I haven't finished reading yet, but I will. Mm -hmm. I really liked the down-to-earth approach and very pragmatic approach that you took. Mm -hmm. But to come back to the second thing, amazing thing, is one of the listeners that wants to participate in the raffle that we'll have, they can win a free copy of the book. So thank you, Radmila from Manning, for making that happen. And coming back to the book, Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed how you go into the details. More than how you go into the details, you have this application, the walking skeleton, as you referred to it in the early access preview. I mean, it's not the finished version, but if someone was to read it today, that's what they would see. I really like how complex it is. Real world It's not your hello world application. And how many things you hit because of that, like how many problems you get to see exactly. and solve because of that. What gave you that idea? <laughs> exactly that, right? Like trying to create an example, even like with Knative, with Tekton, with Prosplane. And then you can like quickly realize that Hello Worlds are easy. They are awesome. When you look at, you know, KubeCon presentations about the single topic, you see a, an example that looks nice. It's doing a bunch of stuff. But then you want to go there and try to change something and everything mm-hmm. breaks. And I don't know, through the years, I feel that I'm very good at finding bugs in open source projects by just trying them out, right? And because I'm involved in so many communities by having an example that is mixing different tools and using them, you know, in in a way that, you know, like a real user will mm-hmm. use it, I keep getting in touch with communities, fixing bugs in different open source projects. And now I'm just building that example as part of the book because I believe that if you really want to see how the tools work and how complex they are, you need to have, you know, a, a better hello world example. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, advised against having a single example for the entire book because usually it's pretty difficult to uh, cover the same example from different angles. But, you know, I took that as a challenge and I think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's worth investing time, you know, in a larger example that as you suggested at some point, that example should be part of kind of like a foundation, maybe the CNCF, maybe the CV foundation. I'm also going through the process of, trying to uh, figure out in which foundation should I host these examples when they are a little bit more mature, right? They are in constant flux because of the tools and because of the project itself. And I keep finding more and more lessons by just doing that. So there is no reason why I should stop. I feel that as if I manage to finish this mm-hmm. book, the example at that point will have so many other new lessons that I can definitely do a second edition yeah. and keep adding chapters until it's like an infinite, you know, Definitely the the gift that keeps on giving. That's why I call these things. So the application it's called from monolith to Kate's. Yes. It's in your GitHub repo currently. You're looking for Mm -hmm. a place which will be more common. So it's not your application. It's our application that we share. It's a reference. That's how it was built. That's the spirit in which 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 it was built. You're right. It was a suggestion to find such a place. We haven't found one yet. So. If someone from the Continuous Delivery Foundation is listening to this, I definitely support the idea of having it there in the CD Foundation. I checked before we started recording to see if it's there. It wasn't there. We talked about this maybe two months ago. So whoever I need to talk to, whichever email or vote I need to send across, I'll be more than happy to do so because it definitely feels like this is a reference application. It's fairly Mm -hmm. complex. I know that the Spring Framework had the Music Store, Rails had the Blog. So these reference applications have been with us over the years in different shapes and forms, and they're very, very valuable. Yeah, yeah, and and in this case, it's it's a a little bit more strange because even if I'm using Spring Boot now for for some of the services, I'm using Go for some of the new services that I'm building now. I'm using kind of like React on the front end. So that's a different community. And I'm using Kubernetes, Knative, Tekton, you know, Crossplane and all these tools that are more from the Kubernetes community. So definitely the CD Foundation sounds like the right place. I've started having some conversations with the one special interest group that they have that it's called Best Practices. Kind of like the initial proposal is to see if I can create some tutorials in a format that relates continuous delivery and specific topic, like for example, event-driven architectures. And then I just put that under that space in their, you know, in their foundation. And if I can get that work, like adding more tutorials and linking the book and and just pushing the examples into their organization might be the next steps, but it's a long process, I think. You mentioned about the long process. I could see the long process just when it comes to the application, because you mentioned Mm -hmm. that you started the book last year in March. 
did you mean 2021 last year or 2020? <laughs> because time is a bit funky, right? Like in recent years. Yeah, it is funky. I would say that the project started kind of like on January 2021. Mm-hmm. And then in March, kind of like, the, you know, the idea was changing a bit. And in March, kind of like, it was more like, like it looks today. So the reason why I ask about this is because I had to look at the repository for the application. This yeah. one's public, by the way, open. And a lot of the how-tos are also publicly available. Obviously, if you want to get a deeper insight into the why and how, like the big picture, that's where the book comes in. But the application, the repository, started in 2020. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the applications and, and the examples were mostly created around for different conferences where I was presenting. Mm. So if I wanted to show, for example, how to orchestrate cloud events very early on when nobody you know, was doing that and Knative was kind of like trying to start to provide some of the basic mechanisms, I would just write an application in that repository, link kind of like a readme or like a step-by-step tutorial, and then, you know, just have all the resources in there. I found kind of like quickly enough that that repository is just the main entry point for a bunch of other repositories that are hosting, you know, different services and different tutorials as well. But that's kind of like the main entry mm-hmm. point. That's why the repository is kind of like pretty old. I would say that before that, I had kind of like the repositories of the services, even before having kind of like a single mm-hmm. repository for all the tutorials. And most of those services, if you look at my GitHub repository, I have like, 450 repositories in there. And most of those are tutorials or examples that I've used to present in in different conferences Mm -hmm. around like different years. Regarding that, it's funny enough, this year, if I manage to get into a conference in Barcelona that is called JVCN Conf, it will be my 10th year in a row presenting in that conference. That's why I have so many examples and so so many presentations. So it would be fair to say that you've been doing this for some time now. And you've been thinking about this and you've been refining this idea of continuous delivery, of applications, mm-hmm. of the cloud native landscape, of Knative, of what it means for cl- what it means for an application to be cloud native. So these mm-hmm. thoughts have been occupying your headspace for a long, long time now. And I really like the journey that you've been on and it shows the effort and how everything is coming together. I think this book is like a milestone. But this journey, mm-hmm. you've been on this path for quite some time, and I love these types of stories. Yeah, I would say that that path started kind of like around 2015, 20, 2015, I, I would mm-hmm. say. So I 100% agree. I think that if I manage to finish this book, this is going to be kind of like the summary of my last six, seven mm-hmm. years of work. And doing all that like presentations and examples and all that stuff is very related on, on working with open source projects. That I feel that that's part of the work that I'm doing. So for me, it's usually like 30% on coding, 30% on kind of like planning and roadmap. And then the other 30% is in going and meeting people and sharing experiences and, and lessons learned. I use kind of like that loop through the years to just keep going and keep learning and keep, you know, staying kind of like up to date with the, the stuff that is happening around the, this space. I can really relate to that because for me, the changelog application was a bit like that. So when I started 2015, 2016 with Jared and Adam, the whole idea was like, how do we deploy this thing? That's how it started. How do we deploy this application? And we just went from WordPress to Phoenix. It is still a monolith, but over the Mm -hmm. years, we made it cloud native. And it works on Kubernetes. We ran it on Docker Compose. We had Docker Swarm. We used Concourse Mm -hmm. at some point, Ansible. We went through all the generations step by step and we shared that story along the years. And the people love those episodes so much that they said, well, why don't you do a podcast? And that's how Ship It started. Exactly. <laughs> so Perfect. I can relate to your story about working on something long-term on a code base, on an application, and using that mm-hmm. to learn and to share your learnings with others. I find it really amazing because I just suggested to move kind of like the example to a foundation. I keep getting like over the years, every time that I present this in a, in a conference or in a meetup or whatever, I keep getting people coming back and telling me that they want to help me to build the example. So I have a number of contributors like during the years that they have pushed me to, you know, make things better even for them. So I know, you know, what do they need in order to start contributing. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of like in, under my, my personal organization, which is always kind of like a limitation for more people to see it, more people to give it a try. And also it just, you know, it puts all the pressure on me on, on making it better. So I'm really hoping to be able to move this uh, sometime soon. 
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics light extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident run books, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. Create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. I'm curious, why do you call it delivery and not deployment? Why continuous delivery for Kubernetes and not continuous deployment for Kubernetes? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I would say that it's delivery because what I'm interested in seeing and pushing through Kubernetes is the features, not stuff that runs. Mm -hmm. So I'm not interested in, in how things are running or how they are running. I'm more interested that this X feature is up and, and ready to be consumed by a user. Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of like the, the, main, the main reason behind it. I do not care much about the technicalities on how that gets deployed or how that gets executed in a container or mm, okay. Lambda or whatever. But I think that that's mostly the reason. Does that make sense to your point? It does. My curiosity comes from the fact that I always think of delivery as something that you do, but you don't get it all the way out there. So it's like ready. It's integrated. It's there, but I mm. haven't deployed it yet. And I don't know when that will happen, as in it needs to go maybe through a couple of more stages. It's ready, delivered in that it hasn't been deployed yet. It's available in some repository as an artifact. But mm -hmm. when I hear deployment, in my mind, what happens? Okay, I know this was pushed into production. This was shipped into production. So that's the distinction which my brain makes. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like a different perspective on the terminology around the CD like space is also confusing and different people use terms in different mm -hmm. ways. That's why kind of like the CD foundation is creating that kind of like glossary. And I think that they are more aligned with you than with my description. Right. So can we also read the title of the book as continuous deployment? Because you do talk about how to get code out there. Okay, okay. So it can be used interchangeably. Delivery is like a loose term, but mm -hmm. it, we're definitely seeing how to deploy code across multiple applications. You're calling them services. It is a microservices mm -hmm. application. It has a resemblance of microservices application. So how do you manage that complexity and how do you scale it out and how how do you deal with different aspects of that? Okay, mm -hmm. so I'm going to ask you something which maybe I should have asked much, much earlier because I like my whys early. Why is delivering code frequently important? Okay, yeah, there are several reasons for that, right? And the main reason I would say from a developer perspective is just to validate that the things that you are doing are improving things or bringing new functionality and not breaking stuff. Mm -hmm. So the faster, the more times that you deploy, the easier it is to get the errors. And if you find an error, the easier it is to fix it. Okay. Following kind of like that approach, I would say that I'm interested in, in just making sure that developers are not blocked by deploying new versions of things. And just they have kind of like a, you know, a continuous flow of changes to production or to the environment where they can at least get some validations for different set of mm -hmm. users, right? Maybe it's not production, but it's, you know, kind of like a place where users can access or we can give access to a specific set of users. I'm really into that. And for me, when I started with Kubernetes, that kind of like seemed like a long way. And for me, when I, when I started with Kubernetes, I was developing kind of like Java applications and I was with that kind of like monolith mindset. Mm -hmm. And if you just want to apply the same, you know, the same principles that you were 
bringing with these like very big applications, then you are not really leveraging the power of Kubernetes, yeah. right? In this case, if you are building on top of Kubernetes, you should be able to, you know, extract all the benefits from having kind of like this amazing software that it's scheduling things and that it's routing traffic across like very complex networks. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, you know, I would love to see people using Kubernetes kind of like in the right way and being able to just to keep deploying, you know, new versions of their application, maybe even like in parallel, just to try out different mm -hmm. features and keep evolving, right? I don't know why, but when I think about like these kind of applications, I do think about like, you know, Gmail, right? Like as a user, I use Gmail and I can see that, you know, it's changing, but it's never down. It's always, like, always working. And if it gets down for a bit, it might be kind of like in a, you know, in a region only, yeah. right? But it keeps improving all the time. I don't see the changes. And I would love to, as a developer, to be able to participate in a project that works mm -hmm. in that way. And when you look at the, and the entire industry, at least from my perspective, I haven't seen so many examples of that being done in the open, mm -hmm. right? So I do feel kind of like a personal mission there just to show people how some tools can help you to, to go there. We are so similar in this respect, definitely. Showing people how we can do this publicly is mm -hmm. so important because it is hard. And I think part of it are the tools. They are complex. Let's be honest, Kubernetes is yeah. complex. There's a reason for that complexity most of the mm -hmm. times. But also there is an element of people complicating things and making them more complex than they need to be. So I think part of it is self-inflicted and the part which is down to the tooling that can be managed. What's more difficult to be managed is like the self-inflicted complexity, which you don't need to make things as complicated or as complex as you make them. So you mentioned something important. You mentioned about doing Kubernetes the right way. What does that mean to you? So for me, that means to being able to use the mechanisms that Kubernetes provides in a way that allows your applications to be scaled up. Mm -hmm. And also just to, again, to keep deploying new versions of the same applications kind of like in a continuous fashion without shutting down the entire application down and then just deploying the new version, mm -hmm. right? I would love to show how, how you can basically do that, right? Like having multiple versions of the same service and then route traffic to one, to another, just to shut down that service and replace it by another implementation, for example, in a different language. All those kind of interactions that enable developers to, you know, trust in contracts, write, you know, just, you know, the APIs and trust that the other team is going to do the right thing with that mm. and making sure that the application doesn't crash like altogether, right? that it's more resilient and that you can scale it you know, more independently. Do you think that having a microservices architecture is a requirement for this? I don't think so. I think that you, know, you might have like different approaches for different kind of like use cases. I do believe that if you want to scale a specific kind of like functionality on its own without like scaling up then the rest of the application, you might need to have some kind of like separation in there. I'm really interested in, in, you know, in, in exploring more and going deeper into how provider, cloud providers recommend their customers to implement different applications and how that maps to the open source space. Because you know, for most of these kind of like distributed application challenges, there are already solutions. And the problem right now is to how these solutions can be built with open source projects without relying on cloud provider specific tooling. Mm. So there is a journey there that needs to be explained and it's not that easy to, to figure out on your own. I think it's very important to mention that different contexts are completely valid. So even if you do mm -hmm. have a monolith, it's still okay and it may still work very well for you to use Kubernetes. Yep. And Kubernetes is not a requirement, but it makes certain things easier, especially if you don't introduce a lot of complexity from, again, I think it depends on the context, right? It depends on the perspectives. It depends on what you're trying to get out of it. But from my experience, as we evolved our changelog application, it is a monolithic application. It is a single mm -hmm. container image and everything runs there, including the background jobs. Part of it is down to the VM. So the Erlang VM scales really, really nicely. It's mm -hmm. very fast to boot up. At the boot up is not slow. I mean, I know that some runtimes can be slower to boot up and I'm looking at Java, there's good mm -hmm. reasons why that is. There is some legacy there as well, some optimizations, just how that bytecode works. But even in that case, your applications, your services in the book, they are Spring applications, Spring Boot. Mm -hmm. 
And I think you mentioned something about converting them to Spring Native. What does that mean? All right. So that's a whole new thing going on in the Java community, right? So in, in Java, we have the Java you know, SDKs mm -hmm. and the Java Virtual Machine. That, that's kind of like the optimized environment for running Java applications. So when containers appeared, running you know, a Java virtual machine inside the container, mm -hmm. it does consume more memory because you need to do a bunch of stuff and some memory, memory and CPU utilization in different ways. So you can run applications that are you know, platform independent. But with Spring Native now, what they are doing is using a new VM that uh, was created by Oracle, that is Graal mm -hmm. VM, that allows you to generate binaries, basically. So the end result is more like a Go application. The startup time is, is similar. But of course, there are like some trade-offs when you run in, the, in that approach and when you run with the you know, more classical JVM. Applications that are compiled and then you, know, you have a binary, they will run and they will not be able to optimize themselves while they are running. Uh, and that's kind of like a different story when you run with the JVM. The JVM is all the time just picking up you know, memory utilization and understanding how the application is performing so it can improve and fine-tune itself yeah. while it's running. So you kind of like have the two kind of like uh, scenarios. And I think that by having RALVM and Spring Native allowing you to create, you know, these kind of like more optimized binary images, we can cover kind of like a wide spectrum of different kind of like applications, like long running monoliths that they are going to be running for, you know, months and or years. Mm -hmm. And the other space, you know, functions more like lambdas that needs to quickly boot up and, and run. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, like Spring Native and RALVM are kind of like the, the tool to go because that's kind of like what you need when you're running functions. You need fast, you know, startup times. So you don't like have a lot of cold starts and you can just start processing requests yeah. as fast as possible. So to go back to the monoliths that are running on Kubernetes, yeah. it is possible. We've been doing it for years. There is a good experience to be had. I think some Java applications can be a bit slower to boot, even though there are ways of, mm -hmm. you know, speeding that up. At least in my experience, I don't remember ever having to run a Graal VM application in Kubernetes. The only example that I can give is the RabbitMQ perf test CLI tool. We had a Graal mm -hmm. VM implementation, was much smaller, single binary, much quicker to boot up. I do have to say the performance wasn't on par with the native Java, JDK, JRE runtime. But even then, there were like small issues which I was expecting to be fixed as the Graal VM, the runtime matures. And this was like a couple of mm -hmm. years back, so I haven't checked since. But it's very promising for sure. As a monolith, I think the things which are more important, monolith running in Kubernetes, because the application is from monolith to Kubernetes, I think your example application in the book, it's worth pointing out that the services, they feel a bit like monoliths in that even though they're broken mm -hmm. down, they still take quite a while to spin up. So the, the boots are slow. But even then, for example, not depending on local storage is very important. Like we did have, for example, volumes in the changelog mm -hmm. application that we would use to mount and all the media used to be stored on those persistent volumes, the PVs. The problem with that was that you could only have one instance of your application running. Exactly. And um, if you have a storage driver which can support multi-write, there's other issues with that. Slow writes, sometimes data can get corrupted depending on which one you use. Again, different maturity levels, different sorts of things. Deadlocks, things get a bit more complicated. So I think that's one way of doing monoliths in Kubernetes wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, we have still been doing it for years and we are improving. I mean, we've only just switched to S3 for storing all that media, so there's no more persistent volumes. The other one is around databases, right? Where do you store your mm -hmm. database and how do you access it? I think that's another big one. And if you run it on Kubernetes mm -hmm. as well, then maybe you can't run your application in multiple Kubernetes clusters because how do they connect to the single database? Mm -hmm. What would you recommend there? How would you recommend that applications, monoliths, running in Kubernetes solve that problem, the database problem? The database problem. In the book, I definitely try to cover some of those points because for a developer, like a developer, I don't want to worry about where the database is. I just want to know that I can connect. And then I just want to connect to a database and store my data and just get the data back, mm -hmm. right? So what I've seen so far is that, of course, you can, like, depending on what you are doing, right? Like if you are creating your development environment in the cloud, people tend to say, I will just go to Vietnam and just use the Helm chart and install it. That's far from being production ready. And that's very complicated to maintain over the time, mm -hmm. right? 
So if you are developing something and you really need a database instance, that might be a quick way just to get one up. But then when you move through the chain, right, like when you go to staging and when you start dealing with real kind of like data and you need to be secure, then most of the time you will just end up connecting with, you know, a cloud provider. You can go to Google and just get Cloud SQL in there. They have they use the same APIs and they allow you to connect with similar drivers to what you would do like if you are developing locally. That makes a lot of sense. And they also give you availability across regions and all that stuff. That's really nice. It is expensive, right? But it really depends on what you are doing, yeah. right? Even if you have like a startup and, and you know you need to invest in something like that, I would recommend people just to go that route instead of just building your own database in your own server, of course, as we yeah. used to do before. Managing databases inside Kubernetes, I don't wish that to my worst enemy, mm. unfortunately. I'm, I do not have met any DBA that would be happy by doing so. So I would say, you know, just try to stay away as much as you can. But of course, you need a solution for it. The other approach is to have, you know, an installation of a database outside of your Kubernetes cluster and just connect from inside Kubernetes. Mm. And that's quite common for like on-prem setups, right? Like governments, they they kind of tend to do that because they already have Oracle or... Vendor, yeah, sure. Database, yeah. So that's what I've seen in, in my experience. Again, this is one of the topics that I would like to cover in the book in, in more depth. And I think that in kind of like in the packaging and, and how you install software also in chapter four, I don't know if you have read that, mm. but I do talk about infrastructure, right? Like, because the same happens with message brokers, right? Like, what do you need for an application usually? A message broker, a database, and some other services for sending emails and doing that kind of stuff. That's the main reason why the application has the shape that it has, right? Even if they, like, each of the services kind of like feels like monoliths, they are monoliths on their own. And I want to show how complex they will get if you start adding re really real-life functionality, right? Because using an in-memory database is one thing. Then the next step is just connecting to the database. Then the next step is, okay, that database lives outside your cluster. You know, what kind of complexity do you have? Then secrets become a problem. You need to deal with that. And when you realize you spend kind of like two months trying to figure out how to just get a simple Java application communicating with the database, yeah. which is nonsense. Yeah, I know what you mean. I did spend a fair amount of years in this space looking at distributed stateful systems in Kubernetes. RabbitMQ is one of them. And while the operator gets you really far and it works really well for RabbitMQ specifically, especially since RabbitMQ is built, right? For clustering and Erlang and like all those things are there, yeah. all the primitives are there. Other systems like PostgreSQL, for example, it's a bit more challenging. It's still possible, but challenging. Mm -hmm. And the only time that our application had downtime when it comes to the database, was when PostgreSQL replication stopped working correctly. Yeah. So we got a couple of those. Unfortunately, I mean, it's just like the reality of operating. In our case, maybe we did it wrong, it's possible. But since we switched to single node PostgreSQL that automatically restores from backup, when it gets deleted, mm -hmm. it worked really well. And we didn't have any issues. Putting a CDN in front definitely helped. We have we are very read heavy. Our application is read heavy. We're serving static files, mm -hmm. MP3 files, stuff like that. So CDN goes a long, long way. And we are up even though when maybe there's issues with the origin with the database. But it just goes to show that it is complicated. And as Kelsey Hightower says it, don't do it. Exactly. <laughs> just go for a managed one if you can. It, it simplifies things a great deal. And the choice is there. I mean, every cloud provider has a managed PostgreSQL, a managed MySQL, a managed mm -hmm. whatever you may be using. PlanetScale is there, CockroachDB is there. So there's like a couple of options and more and more are appearing. I know that even like, for example, Fly or Render, they have managed PostgreSQL databases. So even that may be a better solution, which isn't very expensive than running your own. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have an important question. Cloud native with a dash, or without a dash? Oh. <laughs> That's kind of like what's my main fear with the title of the mm -hmm. book. It's so generic. Originally, it was going to be cloud native continuous delivery, and I wanted to remove Kubernetes from mm -hmm. it. But it was so heavily based on Kubernetes that we felt that you know, we need to do you know Kubernetes. And then we removed cloud native because of that, because it's just such a buzzword. You know, it doesn't add anything to, to the title itself. Yeah. I would say that cloud native should go with the dash. Okay, yeah. What about you? I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Now, there is an inconsistency because even when you link to Joe Beta's article on VMware, 
I think he doesn't use the dash. Yeah, probably. So whichever one cloud native, I think it should have a dash, but in many places it doesn't have a dash. So mm-hmm. being consistent is more important than which one you use, as long as... Then finding... Exactly, yeah. because even in your book, I can see there's like sections which use with a dash and there's other sections which is without a dash. So I think standardizing on that would go a long way. So at least people know, is it with a dash or is it without a dash? I don't care which one, as long as I'm using the right one or the consensus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. consensus based, you know, decisions exactly. there. I think that that's really important. And the feedback is really appreciated because when you're writing drafts, this is all about making sure that the ideas are there mm-hmm. and the refinements will come afterwards, right? And that's kind of like also like editorial process that should go through it and uh, just to make sure that we just align with the, the ecosystem that we are talking about. What's up, shippers? Adam here, and I want to tell you about one of our new partners for 2022, MongoDB, the makers of MongoDB Atlas, the multi-cloud application data platform. MongoDB Atlas provides an integrated suite of data services centered around a cloud database designed to accelerate and simplify how you build with data. Ditch the columns, the rows, once and for all, and switch to the database loved by millions of developers for its intuitive document data model and query API that maps to how you think and code. When you're ready to launch, Atlas automatically layers on production-grade resilience, performance, and security features so you can confidently scale your app from sandbox to customer-facing application. As a truly multi-cloud database, Atlas enables you to deploy your data across multiple regions on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud simultaneously. You heard that right. You can distribute your data across multiple cloud providers at the same time with a click of a button. And the next step is try it today for free. They have a free forever tier, so you can prove to yourself and to your team that the platform has everything you need. Head to mongodb.com slash changelog. Again, mongodb.com slash changelog. And by our friends at Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily standups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at Changelog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. So I would like to talk with you specifics. How would you deploy an application that is running on Kubernetes? What would you pick? This is your application. What would you write your application in? <laughs> and I think I already know the oh. answer to this. <laughs> would you do Java or something else? I think that lately I've been playing a lot with Go. And what I'm doing is I'm just taking a look at the Go ecosystem, trying to figure out you know, how does it compare with the Spring and Spring Native ecosystem? Mm-hmm just to see how far off they are, right? I tend to believe that the Java ecosystem is way much more mature because it has been around for a long time. But as you mentioned, it has a lot of legacy. And sometimes bringing simple stuff like building a container, you know, took us like to the Spring Boot community like several years to include that into now our standard procedures. So I would say that I would write it in Go because of the challenge and because now I'm working with Go in Knative. So I want to actually get more and more and more experience uh, understanding how the community, the Go community is evolving. 
there are a bunch of like common functionalities and libraries that I can see in the Go community that are really interesting how they got developed and how they are being maintained. So I would definitely go with Go right now mm-hmm. and I would definitely use Go Google, you know, KO in order to nice. just iterate faster on top of it. You know, I've been using Google Cloud for some time, so I would definitely choose like Google Cloud as my target platform, creating a Kubernetes cluster in there. Autopilot? Probably not. I'm more like a standard guy. Okay. (laughs) Because I have been using the standard one for so long that I I would rather just do that. And I would definitely give it a try to Google Cloud Run, mostly because what I'm doing right now in the Knative space is working with the Funk CLI. I don't know if you have seen that. No, I haven't. So basically, it's kind of like an initiative that it's building on top of Knative. And most of it, what we are trying to build is like a developer experience that looks like Cloud Run. So basically, you just have a CLI that creates a function for you. It just scaffolds the template in any language that you want. And then you just do Funk Deploy, and it just deploys that into a Kubernetes cluster that is running Knative. Okay. Right? It does expose some interfaces, for example, consuming uh, cloud events. So you can start connecting, you know, different sources of events to that function so you can trigger that function. I'm in love with that, like the programming model. I think that there is a lot of exploration that needs to be done in that space. So I would choose like a framework that feels like that because I want to get more into that that space. I'm not like more like a serverless guy Mm -hmm. in general, but all this work in the Knative space and in Funk specifically have pushed me towards that model. And I think that that, unless kind of like the use case is completely the opposite or we need to do like a lot of batch processing with weird stuff, I wouldn't go for that. But, you know, okay. if you ask me to build an application right now, I would start with that and then see how it goes. Okay, okay. So if you're telling me Cloud Run and Knative, then you don't even have to worry about an ingress. You don't have to worry about certificates. All that is taken care for you, including also scaling. That's just like built in. So you don't, again, don't have to worry mm-hmm. about that. Interesting. What about the deployment part? How do you deploy updates to your application? So I would go for kind of like more like a GitOps approach, right? And I would love to have my application close to just an application repository where I can just change it. Mm-hmm. And then just it gets built automatically for me somewhere remote. And then it gets updated into that cluster. Because I'm talking about Knative, I would expect to be able to something that I haven't seen implemented that much, but different vendors are implementing something similar that when you make a change and you have a new version available from that, you can kind of like choose how much traffic to route mm-hmm. to it or some constraints on, on which traffic is going to be hitting that new version as yeah. well. I would love to see kind of like the entire cycle automated. And with Funk, it's something that we are doing now. We are doing on cluster builds. So basically, you create the, the function that it's local, then you can just connect that to a Git repository and then trigger the build and deploy in a remote fashion. Mm-hmm. Or you can do it locally, right, as well. Interesting. So, yeah, it, it's getting it's getting really interesting. And, and there are, like, a lot of things going around that project that it's it's calling my attention. And remember what we discussed before. I'm not up for Hello World examples. Yes. And if you take a look at Fun nowadays, you will see you can create a function that you can deploy, and it runs, and it scales, and all that stuff. But it's just a simple fu- single function with, you know, with printing something in the logs, mm. right? That's fine, but what happens when you have 100 functions and they need to send events between each other, right? Okay. I want to make sure that I have a repository, you know, all that described, you know, in a declarative way, that every time that I change something, it gets reflected into my class. Okay. How does Jenkins X and Tekton CD, the two tools that you mentioned in the book, how do they relate to what you just mentioned about Funk and how you would do deploys today? Perfect. That's a very good question. So. Just let me step back a bit, like on my Jenkins X story, right? It's pretty similar to Knative. I started with Jenkins X pretty early on when they announced the project. Mm. And I don't know if you know the founders from, from Jenkins X, but James Strachan and James Rawlings. No, just by name, but no, I don't know them like as I know you. Very interesting story, right? Like, so James Strachan and, and James Rawlings, they were working for Red Hat. Mm-hmm. They were the people that really motivated me to go into Kubernetes full on in 2015. They basically started with Kubernetes when it was announced. They built the first like Java API for interacting with Kubernetes clusters. Mm -hmm. That's called the Fabricate APIs. They were behind that Fabricate project, which was pretty much CI/CD for Kubernetes in 2015. That was pretty like for me, like it was like, what the hell are these guys doing? Like why it's like they are pushing so hard into that space. 
And basically, after a couple of years in Red Hat, they decided to move to CloudBees and they founded Gala Jenkins X, mm-hmm. trying to solve the problems for CI/CD on top of Kubernetes full time. And it was pretty clear that Jenkins wouldn't kind of like cut it because of you know the architecture of Jenkins itself. And that's why they started heavily uh, pushing for Tecton. In the very early days of Tecton, they said, we will use Tecton as our pipeline mechanism. And because we are building a CI CD system, we will need to make sure that Tecton evolves. Right. And then it becomes a tool that basically was gluing a bunch of different tools on top of Kubernetes, providing kind of like that Git, GitOps flavor, like again, pretty early on before even kind of like GitOps was a thing. And for me, that was kind of like a, like a learning experience on the open source side, mm. right? I basically participated of that community, learned a lot about how they build Jenkins X by continuously deploying Jenkins X into kind of like production for people to consume. Mm-hmm. And it, it was kind of crazy. They were doing kind of like 4,000 releases a year. It was pretty unstable sometimes, yeah. but they were going really, really fast. And the problems that they were trying to solve was mixing up you know, 20 different CNCF projects mm-hmm. at the same time, all changing, Kubernetes changing. So everything was breaking all the time and they had a way to make sure that they keep on a stable release for the users. But at the same time, they have three, four releases a day with new features and solving stuff. I talk a lot about like Jenkins, not, not much uh, about Jenkins X, but I do introduce Tecton in the book and talk about Jenkins X because what they teach me was the fact that usually having kind of like that Git repository as a, as a single place of truth that you are going to use to sync to a Kubernetes cluster, it's definitely the right way to go. Also for me as a developer, what I learned from them is that I want to build the stuff, but I don't even care where is that built. I just want it to get built. And I don't even care what where are the components building those things. I just want to push for my application source code and I want to get a new container plus a new bunch of YAML files or a Helm chart mm. at the end of the pipeline that I can just go and deploy. And from that perspective, I think that Jenkins was covering kind of like the, the entire space. And for that same reason, was such a complicated project that it was pretty difficult to grasp for people really wanting to run that on production in their in their companies. That makes sense. So do you care if it's a push or a pull? From GitHub. Yeah. Or like, do you care if the CI pushes code into production, CI CD? or if production pulls it down. Do you have an opinion around how that should work? What is good? What are the trade-offs? The whole push versus pull into production aspect. I would be careful to like emitting kind of like a, you know, like a strong opinion on that because as a developer, I don't want to get involved with production Mm -hmm. deployments, but I would be very in favor of, you know, on the CI pushing to production if that basically means declaratively saying, hey, these are kind of like the new versions of things, just apply that into the cluster. I always thought that if your CI CD system can push into production, it most probably has too many privileges because it's almost like your production, you declare what you care about and what you care about. Mm-hmm. I always want to be running the last version, the latest version in production if possible. And then mm-hmm. your production should know how to reconcile that state. I know it's not entirely GitOps, and I know that GitOps has specific shards that you want to be running in production, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense. But really what you care about is that you run the latest version. And I don't think there are like competing priorities. You need to make that work within GitOps, and GitOps requires specific shards because now how do you roll back? And we've been doing this wrong for a long, long time, by the way. Exactly. Like my question is like, like to you, because from that statement, the only thing that I would like be disagree in some point is that I'm not entirely sure that I want to run the latest version. I want to run multiple versions. Multiple versions. From my perspective. I want to run multiple versions. I want to be able to do that without like going crazy. Yeah. So I need a tool to do that because without the right tools, it's almost impossible. I think you can run multiple versions for a short amount of time. But at some point, you will have database migrations, right? Mm -hmm. And even like at the same service, you will have a migration at some point even if you have like a microservices architecture and each microservice has its own data store. So if you're abiding by that, at some point you will migrate data. So will your previous version know how to operate with a new migration? And maybe the answer is no. So in that case, sure, there will be a period in which both versions will run, but at some point, if migration succeeded, the new version will take over and the old version will eventually, you know, just be 
recycled. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's very specific to the use case and how do you build the applications yeah. to deal with that like version-to-version incompatibility, right? And how stateless they are and how do they kind of like define those data contracts as yeah. well. I was very interested like a couple of years back into a company that's called Delphix. I don't know if you know them. No. But they were basically in that business of making, you know, data snapshots mm. for these kind of things, right? Like for when you are moving to different versions and you really need data to be moved around or migrated or move around servers or move around regions. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that I haven't seen in the open source space. I will be really interested in figuring out who in the CNCF, you know, ecosystem is focused on data and making sure that data is available for developers and to the production. You know, so just to help you can make data available in developer, in development, staging and production mm-hmm. and make sure that you have kind of like the same evolution on the data that on the service side. One thing which I did try in recent months and it worked fairly well was planet scale with database migrations. So PlanetScale, mm-hmm. they branch your data. So it's like your Git branch. And I use that with WordPress. And the way to install WordPress is you have to start like one of those branches. It will do all the database migrations and mutations. And then you commit that change. And then your main is always like it's locked and it shouldn't change. And when you want to start doing any changes, again, you start another branch. And I thought that was a very interesting idea and it mapped to my Git mindset, right, of how that works. Mm-hmm. Now, we haven't used that with our application. And what we do, it's, it's very simple. Before we deploy a new version, we take a backup. It's actually one of the first things that happens when a new version goes out. It takes a backup of the database and then it runs the migration. Mm-hmm. We never had a problem with migrations in six years, but if there was one, we would have a backup to go back to because you never had to yep. do it. It's not automated, but there's always a backup to go back to if you mess things up. And the easiest way to do that mm-hmm. is just to leave the database, recreate it, and by default, it restores from backup. So you can tell it which backup version to restore from, and that's it. Now, we don't have a lot of data. We're thinking gigabytes, right? If you have you know, terabytes or petabytes, it's a whole new problem. Mm-hmm. So again, context matters. Yeah, I think that dealing with data as like Git, it's a really interesting kind of like concept. I don't know how that works at, at scale. And I've never been so involved into that, but it feels that that's kind of like one of the missing things for application developers to figure out this like forever evolving services and schemas and migrations and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, for sure. Because that for me, that's kind of like the main thing that would block me to keep deploying new versions. Considering that we are recommending to not run a database in Kubernetes, I can Mm -hmm. see where this is going, right? You just want a database that, a database vendor that manages this Mm -hmm. or, you know, some sort of like an IaaS which has this managed service. So I can see that being the answer even in the future for this. Now, Mm -hmm. I have a crazy idea that I want to run by you. And this is like off the trail, off the beaten trail. Can you imagine a post- Kubernetes world. Oh, yes. And I'm really looking forward for that world. Because, okay, tell me more. Why and how? <laughs> because I think that we have learned so much from Kubernetes that now it's time, it's time to create developer experience that basically hide Kubernetes from mm-hmm. you. That's kind of like what Cloud Run and Funk is, basically. I want a CLI or a tool that basically allows me to point the Git repository and then just get something up and running somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't want to care about all the other pieces that needs to be there for things to get built in a secure way. I think that supply chain and you know security supply chain is, is coming really, really hard these days. And I do care about security, but I do feel that those things need to get solved and they need to get solved for me as a developer. So I know that I'm working with software. I'm responsible for the libraries that I use. I'm responsible for the things that I choose to use. But when I'm deploying something into production, you know, yeah. first of all, we can reproduce it. And then it's secure enough for me not to care much about how things get in there, right? Yeah. So that's why I do believe that there is a post-Kubernetes world where we build, where we basically use the Kubernetes APIs to build abstractions up, you know, in, into the into higher levels, where we talk about more like applications, where we talk about like services that are running, but not specifically how do we create a deployment for Kubernetes. Right. I think that the, the community is already over that. Like most of the things like, even like we are not writing Docker files anymore, right? Mm. We have all these tools that allows us to basically containerize our applications without writing Docker files because we know, we have recognized that writing Docker files is where all the vulnerabilities happen. The same with Kubernetes deployment. If you messed it up there, you you messed up a secret, then, then things go wrong. What do you use instead of Docker files? 
I'm curious. So KO from Google, they will just use like a base image layer and they will just create a container for you. A Spring Native, they do the same. They use build packs in order to define how the final container image gets created. Mm. And you always have the faults, right? If you want to change that, then you can just change the build pack or extend it. And then you will get the right thing that your company decided for you to use, not the thing that the developer decided to use. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is very different. It's a very big difference. Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, so... In this post-Kubernetes world, there is still Kubernetes, or at least something that looks like Kubernetes from an API perspective, but you're not interacting with it. Those are higher-level concepts that you interact with, higher-level components, such as Cloud Run, such as Fung, such as Scale. Yeah, I do feel positive that we are getting there, right? Like, I do feel that even with Crossplane, right, the fact that you can create, like, a database in Google Cloud by creating a resource in Kubernetes using Crossplane is great. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I would expect that definition to be a little bit different, yeah. maybe with the user interface and that the resource creations gets created somewhere in the back. Kubernetes is there, everything is there. But as a developer, I just get a database and a URL and a secret to connect. I can see that, definitely. I can imagine that. Okay, what's coming for your book in the next three to six months? Okay, so I'm finishing kind of like writing chapter six, which is about eventing and event-driven architectures. So can it eventing and event-driven architectures? That's focused more on, on cloud events and why this is important for building large-scale applications. The chapter after that, it's going to be about like closer to Funk and more serverless on top of Kubernetes mm -hmm. and how that works. And again, kind of like what kind of scenarios you should be implementing and what happens when you are kind of like in this, you know, different cloud provider space and how do you connect to things, for example, how do you consume events from the infrastructure. Chapters eight and nine, they are still under discussion. They are like just changing. I know that supply chain might be one big topic to cover. I want definitely build like on platform as well. So the last two chapters are around platform building on top of Kubernetes, which I believe is something that we need to cover. And it, it is extremely related on how do we provide our users like that continuous delivery or continuous deployment platform for them to use. Mm -hmm. And supply chain, because it needs to be there as well for day two, right? Again, I'm not for hello worlds where you can just run your own pipelines and that will work. You need to definitely have, you know, the right team building and defining what things, what scans needs to happen for code to be moved around and, and deployed in front of users. Can our listeners help you in some way? Yes, they're like, tons of work to do. One of the ways that you know that you mentioned is the early access program in Manning. You can access there and access the drafts and get in touch with me using Twitter or even using kind of like the live project in there. My DMs are open. So if there are listeners, I'm at Salavoy in Twitter. You can just feel free to reach out. If you're interested about the book, I can definitely share some discount codes as well if you're interested in that. And as Gerhard mentioned, you know, we have the source code of all the tutorials and all the step tutorials, step-by-step -step tutorials in GitHub. They are open. And the main idea behind those tutorials is that you can, by creating a Kubernetes cluster, you can run all these applications, experiment with them, and then figure out, you know, what's stopping you, what's making you slow in your company or in your business use case that you're building. I really like that. And that's something which I started doing as well. Part of reading this book, giving you feedback, trying things out, seeing what doesn't work, seeing what is maybe a bit more complicated than it needs to be. How do we simplify that? Because I really do feel that this is like our book that we can all contribute to nice. and we can all be proud of. Obviously, you're the author because you've put so much work into it. I can see in the application, I can see like it's not just writing the book, it's everything else that is invisible, but it makes part of it. So any way that we can help you just a little bit you know, because the effort is immense. It's really difficult to appreciate. But just look at the commits. Look at the 330 something commits that the application had, and you will realize just how much work there is. Early mornings, late nights. And even if you just try it out and you tell Mauricio what doesn't work, that is enough. Yeah, 100%. And because the application is changing all the time, like feedback is highly appreciated from users, for example, running in different platforms, with different setups, with different versions of things. Because at the end of the day, this for, for me to be able to finish, to say that I finished the book, I need to make sure that the examples are stable and people can consume. Yeah. We mentioned Go and Java during the, this, you know, this talk. But if you are like a Rust developer or if you want to use any other stack, and you want to build a service, feel free to get in touch and we can just add another example mm -hmm. to, to that repository just to show that if you're using Kubernetes, you should be leveraging kind of like this polyglot space and all tools are welcome there. Maurizio, it's been a pleasure. 
Thank you very much for coming on Ship It. I'm looking forward to next time when the book is finished. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you, Erhan. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. This is just one of our podcasts for developers. Go to changelog.com forward slash master for the rest. You can join us for free via changelog.com forward slash community. Big thanks to Jack McNichol, Lars Wickman and Adrian Mesta for the episode 40 follow-up discussion in our Ship It Slack channel. Also, thanks Thomas Eckert for sharing how you listen to Changelog podcasts on your Apple Watch. I intend to follow up on it in episode 50. Breakmaster Cylinder, your beats are great. Our listeners from all around the world appreciate the low latency changelog.com that you're serving faster. Let's keep it up. That's it for this week. See you all next week.